VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 4th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. We all know the expression, uh, I need a drink. It's something we say to ourselves after every episode of Inquiring Minds, right? (laughs) Only if we then have to listen to ourselves. (laughs) Right. And it's something that millions of people are going to be saying slash doing this 4th of July weekend. So our society does all this drinking for better and sometimes for worse. But I don't think people think much about the science that makes it all possible. I mean, the fact is that the sun is ultimately uh, kind of the source of all our alcohol because it feeds into plant photosynthesis. That makes the sugars that the plants uh, produce. And then we use those sugars to make booze with the help of some little friends called yeast who convert that sugar into ethanol and carbon dioxide. So around the world, since time immemorial, cultures have figured out how to do this using their own native plants from exploiting the agave plant, which they do in Central America, to make tequila and mezcal, to using corn to make whiskey, to using trees to make things like spruce beer. Humans are pretty ingenious booze makers, as well as ingenious boozers. And this week's guest is the expert on that. She's Amy Stewart, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Drunken Botanist, The Plants That Create the World's Greatest Drinks. And here's a clip from our interview where Stewart explains that the chemistry of making alcohol was really one of our earliest human sciences. Sure. I mean, fermentation, you know, we have really good evidence, like analyzing the residue on pottery shards, um, really good evidence of people making some kind of alcoholic beverage going back at least 10,000 years. And of course, probably much longer than that. You know, these early drinks tended to be very experimental and kind of weird, like um, a mixture of maybe barley and grapes and honey. So it's like, it's not quite beer. It's not quite wine. It's not quite mead, but it's just like everything we have that's possibly fermentable. <laughs> we're going to put it in a clay vessel and see what happens. So yeah, we've been doing that for a very long time. So think about that. The invention of alcohol, which is basically a scientific discovery, predates any number of things in human civilization, including, I think, monotheism and the city-state. So it was pretty important to us. <laughs> well, I guess the jury is still out, though, whether alcohol is a driver of a civilized society or an unraveler. You know, Would we have been civilized a lot earlier if we hadn't figured out how to make alcohol? Um, but it also brings, t- to me, another question, which is, you know, I think it's really important to understand alcohol and 
and its role in our society and how long it's been around, especially if we're going to start to compare it to marijuana, uh, where people are starting to think about legalization of, of cannabis and, you know, they often compare it to alcohol. And I think unless we really understand, um, you know, the role that alcohol plays in our society, it's difficult to make that comparison. I'm going to go ahead and guess that we have more experience with alcohol. <laughs> Well, absolutely. Right. And so, yeah, so so that also means, you know, this is a topic for a whole other show. Um, but it also means that we're we're very, very well versed in the ill effects of alcohol, not so much the potential ill effects of cannabis yet. Mm -hmm. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some sciencey things in the news. So this week, the Supreme Court dumped a lot of decisions that have people upset, uh, none of them more so than the infamous Hobby Lobby case. And in this case, the court ruled in a split 5-4 decision, you can guess who's on the 5 and who's the 4, that private companies don't have to give their employees contraceptive coverage if it conflicts with their beliefs, a certain kind of company, which we can talk a little bit more about. Now, there are many, many things you might object to about this, but one of our writers here at Mother Jones, Molly Redden, explains that the court also, in effect, endorses some bad science in that decision. And she is actually here with us. We pulled her in to talk about her article. Uh, so, Molly, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, thanks for having me. So the company in this case, um, explain this to us, the whole premise of their complaint in, the, in a way is a false belief. Is that right? That's right. It's actually false in two ways, and one of them is very creative. So um, in their brief to the court, Hobby Lobby names four types of uh, contraceptives, which it says causes abortion. They name uh, two pills, Ella and Plan B, they're types of emergency contraceptives, and then two IUD devices. And in its complaint, it says that these may prevent an embryo from implanting in the womb. Uh, and uh, that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, medical science does not uh, consider abortion to be uh, preventing an embryo from implanting in the womb. Uh, what medicine considers an abortion is uh, expelling a fertilized egg that has already been implanted in the womb. So they consider that a pregnancy. And when you end that, that's medically an abortion. Uh, so Hobby Lobby, they, they misdefine abortion. But then, on the other hand, uh, they also use uh, some bad science. So they really like to point out that the FDA's birth control guide says uh, that these drugs, those contraceptive pills, uh, may prevent implantation or attachment. Uh, but what you have to understand is those guidelines date back to 1999. It's really, really hard for the FDA for a number of complicated reasons that we don't have time to get into uh, to update their guidelines. And so what's uh, much more instructive is to look at what uh, more recent science is telling us. And uh, basically what, what more recent science is telling us is that uh, those two drugs that I named and those two types of IUDs, uh, they actually don't prevent implantation of a fertilized egg. They can um, make it harder for sperm to reach the egg and fertilize it. They can also delay ovulation, uh, so they can delay the body's release of the egg um, until basically the, the sperm dies off, and so there's no uh, chance of fertilization. But more and more, we're learning that uh, these drugs uh, don't prevent implantation. I think one of the other issues here, too, is that 
you know, there are off-label uses for these drugs, as far as I understand. So, you know, there are times in which a woman needs certain drugs in order to, and it's like to do with preventing pregnancy, right? There are certain conditions, endometriosis comes to mind, where some of these drugs are actually quite helpful in treating those conditions. So in my question, I guess, is that... is it only in the case in which these drugs are being used to prevent a pregnancy that Hobby Lobby is able to say, no, you can't have them? Or is it any potential use of these drugs? Uh, well, it's, it's any, um, well, first of all, uh, for preventing, uh, for treating uh, diseases or conditions rather like endometriosis, that is more associated with birth control. But you're right. Uh, IUDs, they're not usually used as a form of emergency contraception. They are usually used as birth control. Um, and, and so in, in that case, they're uh, preventing ovulation. And so there's just no chance that they would even cause what uh, you know, Hobby Lobby has falsely defined as abortion. Um, and you're absolutely right. And yes, this decision does apply to those cases where there are, uh, therapeutic or, uh, just routine birth control uses for these drugs. Uh, even in those cases, Hobby Lobby is now exempted from, uh, covering these drugs. And so is any other privately held company or closely held is how the Supreme Court defined it, uh, if they claim a religious exemption. So something baffles me. Why would you hold this particular false belief? Because if you think abortion is the worst thing in the world, um, wouldn't you be happy to learn that there's less of it <laughs> than you actually feared that there was because these drugs don't do it? I mean, uh, yeah, that's between God and Hobby Lobby. Yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer for you there. But what was really just absolutely astonishing to me is that um, if you read the Supreme Court's decision, the majority opinion, which was written by Samuel Alito, um, I mean, he, in a footnote, he acknowledges that the FDA says these drugs don't cause abortion. But he says, well, the owners of Hobby Lobby consider it to be abortion. And so in the text of what that footnote refers to, he sort of splits the difference. And he says that the four contraceptive uh, methods, quote, may have the effect of preventing uh, a fertilized egg from developing any further etc. I mean, he basically, he footnotes it and with science that says that that's not true, um, but because their religious beliefs say that it is true, uh, tie goes to the runner. It, it was really just, I, it floored me. I was speechless. I guess one of the things that bothers me too, of course, is, and a lot of people, is that, you know, here you are setting up another way in which a company, uh, in this case, is actually getting involved in your personal relationship with your doctor, right? I mean, in some ways, I wonder if it wouldn't just be easier for Hobby Lobby to say, look, we're not going to tell your doctor what to do or what to prescribe or, or, you know, we're not going to affect the care that you get, but we're going to tell you which doctors to go to. You know, is that, you know, yeah, is that it just, I wonder if that's a solution that would be better or worse for either the people who are working for Hobby Lobby or, um, you know, those of us that are really interested in retaining our own rights. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the way that the uh, opposition to this decision and, and the people who argued for the government and agreed with the government in their briefs, the way they framed it, uh, you know, that they're basically um, prescribing your care based on uh, beliefs that don't have anything to do with science. Well, I think that I think that this is this is really bad news, and I'm not sure what else to say about it. But I, I'm just I guess you know if you object to something that there's no reason to object to, but you still object to it, you have a friend today.
Molly, thanks so much for being with us here on Inquiring Minds and unpacking that for us. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks, Molly. Well, there's a lot of, uh, I would argue, human rights violations in the news today. And so I wanted to introduce the next topic of conversation. So you've probably all heard about it. There is this troubling Facebook study uh, in which apparently the posts were being manipulated by the evil Facebook algorithm machine in order to make you feel something. Okay, so that's the kind of media take home. Um, let's just talk a little bit about the study itself, and then we can talk about the ethics involved. Um, so first off, there were about, you know, some somewhat just under 700,000 users that were affected. They were divided up into four groups. Uh, one set uh, of two groups was the positive test. The other set was the negative test. So um, in, in both cases, uh, Facebook would uh, uh, pull out posts that were either more positive or more negative, depending on which group you were in, uh, and then look at how you responded as, as a, your, your Facebook user um, and compare that to a random control group in which just just posts randomly were, were removed. They doesn't matter whether they were positive or, or negative. Uh, and they found a very small effect. Uh, so let's just say that right out. It's a very small effect. But essentially, it, it turns out that if you have more positive posts in your feed, you tend to uh, then respond in more positive ways uh, and, and, and vice versa. Now, what's interesting is that the investigators themselves actually had a different hypothesis going into the study. They thought that perhaps by removing the positive posts, people would feel less envy and be less bitter. And therefore, you know, that, that you'd have a kind of opposite effect. Uh, but it turns out that's not what they found. And they, so they call this sort of an example of emotional contagion that, you know, the, if you're, ex, if you're exposed to positive emotions, you'll feel positive emotions. Now, there are a couple of things wrong with this study. First off, just in terms of the way that it was run. One is that their people are calling into question the way that they gauged whether a, a, a post was positive or negative. And I'm not going to go into details about that. I think you can read about it elsewhere, but that is something for people to note that not all social psychologists agree that, uh, the measure that they were using was really the best one to use. Um, but basically, it's then, a word analysis tool, right? It's a computer analyzing words. And you can just imagine that it's making some assumptions that humans don't always make. That's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, and then and and so so that's one problem. Um, and but but then there's like a, a major issue, of course, that everyone's been talking about, which is, was it ethical for Facebook to run this study at all? And it was published, we should say, at PNAS, which is a reputable journal. It was edited by a woman named Susan Fisk, who's a, a reputa reputable editor um, and, and academic. And she even expressed her own uh, a worry about whether or not this was ethical. But she, she came to the conclusion that it was. Um, the two other investigators named in the study, one was from Cornell, one was from UCSF. Uh, both of those universities uh, are covered under uh, the rules, the common rule that, that, you know, any human subjects research needs to be approved by an IRB board, um, essentially a council within the university that decides whether or not the particular study is ethical. Uh, and so the question is, you know, is it, was it ethical? Was it not? And I think that the answer, uh, as far as I've read it most accurately, is that it's a little bit still debatable. So the big issue is that if, if this was just existing data, uh, that Facebook did no kind of manipulation, then you wouldn't necessarily need to get, um, you know, the IRB, the, the informed consent from your uh, participants. But that's not the case. They actually had a manipulation and they, they had an idea of how people. they... 
Yeah. They did something to people. That's right. So then the question is, could you have done this kind of study without... Um, by and and tell people about it. Give it getting informed consent, and would or would you irreparably harm the results if you did that? And you know the authors say, yeah, you know we, we would have we could not have done this study and told people about it beforehand and not ruined what we were studying. If you tell someone, look, I'm going to mess with your emotions on Facebook, um, you know, is that are they going to be less likely? Is that actually going to mess with their emotions on Facebook, right? But the biggest problem that I have, and here's how I get into a bit of a rant, uh, is that all of that might be true, but there is one thing that they did which is really inexcusable, and that is they did not debrief their subjects. And every psychologist knows that if you're going to use some kind of deception in your study, it is absolutely unethical not to let your subjects know about it eventually. And Facebook should have done that after the study was over. This was in 2012. It only took a week. Um, but of course they didn't. And Chris... Why do you think they did it? <laughs> well, I think that people would have been very angry if suddenly a message showed up saying you were in an experiment, right? Yeah. And isn't it, isn't it your terms of use of Facebook basically let us do this? Uh, and so we want to let you know that we just did. Uh, you, you would The outrage that you're hearing now, you would have heard then. You would have heard then, but I think to a lesser extent, Maybe. because people didn't have to read about it in the news. You know, they would have been told, hey, you know what? You were part of an experiment, just like we do lots of kinds of experiments on you. This is one that we're going to publish. Uh, and it's the right thing to do. But they didn't do that. Instead, um, you know, we had to find out about it once it was published. Yeah, it also it would have been a it would have been in effect a public uh, debrief. Or someone could have like snapshotted it and shared it. I mean, in effect, probably. So in that case, they would then kind of be scooping the research. Um, people would be let out of the bag what they're studying. But they they don't have to report the results, right? So you know, they're still, which I'm sure it took them a year to get published. <laughs> uh, well, I can't get over the fact that they have this gigantic sample size, which is, I guess, what you need in order to find effects this small. So. Um, one of the findings is that when people saw fewer negative words in, I guess, their feed, the amount of negative words that they themselves used decreased by 0.07%, and the amount of positive words increased by 0.06%. So 1% is small. One-tenth of a percent is really small. This is less than that. We're talking about a number that's basically 0.0006. you got to ask, like, does this matter? I mean, I, I don't yeah. know that it matters. I mean, that's the other problem, right? And I think part of the reason you might say, well, if this doesn't matter, why was it published in PNAS? PNAS is a good journal. Uh, and I think the, the truth is, is that, you know, it's, it's a massive study and a sample size that big is, is like, you know, what social psychologists salivate over. <laughs> we all do, right? It's just, it's probably something real here when you have a sample size that big. But on the other hand, it's so small that it's almost irrelevant. So does, I mean, does that mean that your mood is changed? By a, fr I mean, you know what? If the wind blows the wrong way, if a car honks at you on your way yeah. to work, you're going to have a, a bigger, bigger reaction, yeah. way bigger. So, so I think in in what I take away from this study is, okay, you know what? Facebook screwed up. These two, you know, they should have debriefed their subjects, um, but in the end. It doesn't really matter <laughs> because it's, you know, this, this, this effect is so small. And so the, the take home message for me is, you know what? Whatever I read on Facebook is probably not going to have a huge effect on my mood. Yeah. I think that is the take home message. Wow. So, but this is the new world of big data and big social media companies being able to crunch it. I mean, it's, it, it could have been, a, it could have been another company that has lots of data. 
And I think we're going to see that more and more and more and more. You know, you have companies like Lumosity, for example, that does brain training software now with millions of users. And, you know, they certainly can publish results from these massive databases. And so I think you're going to see that more often. Uh, and so I hope that the cautionary tale here for those companies is, look, you know, people might not, you know, get let people opt in, give them the option to participate. They might want to. It might be interesting to them to find out um, if you if you tell them what you're doing. But don't just do it. Right behind their well, back. Well, that's what I don't understand. Maybe we should wrap this up. But just you know, on Facebook all the time, people share surveys. <laughs> like you know, uh, they post and say, "I I took this and I learned this about myself," uh, and they share it with their friends, and then more people take it. Um, and uh, in effect, research data is gathered that way, but the people know what they're doing. Um, yeah. So you're using social media to get subjects. And uh, now maybe there's a self selection that occurs, but you know, you can you can sort of you still at least know what what the subjects are by the questions you ask them but then there's disclosure then everybody goes towards a normal scientific experience so and there's a self-selection of people who post on facebook period so (laughs) yeah okay so (laughs) well thank you for that and and, you know i think it is fascinating and also um, troubling in a number of ways so with that let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with amy stewart hey this is inquiring minds producer adam isaac I wanted to take a minute and remind you that one way you can help us out is by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It really does make a difference and it only takes a few seconds. And if you have not yet, make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter to stay up to date on what we're up to. And as always, thanks for listening. Amy Stewart, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Good to be here. We are thrilled to have you. And let me say, we don't know that much about the drinking habits of our listeners. We have not surveyed them. We've not asked them. But we we think we'll probably find out after this show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And uh, we think it's a safe bet that they're going to be thrilled to learn some new drinking techniques, especially if they understand the science behind them. Uh, So... So it's great to have you. Well, good. Yeah. You know, um, I think that knowing a little bit about like what the plants are and where they come from and how they got turned into alcohol, you actually can make a better drink if you know some of that stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's worth exploring. (laughs) It's a fun topic. So first off, I want to ask you, you describe yourself as a botany writer. So I describe myself as a science writer. Um, Are we like closely related varieties or species or (laughs) what are are we? I didn't know about botany writers per se. uh, Yeah, definitely. You know, um, most of my books have been about the botanical world in some way. But usually what I'm doing is I'm going around and interviewing scientists and figuring out what they do and how to tell that story. And so I think that's what that's what really all science writers do. Um, My interest has been particularly in uh, in plants. And, and and a little bit in bugs, you know, the t- creatures that live with and around plants. So this kind of naturally grew out of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think we're doing something quite similar. So let's let's go on um, to to the topic. So you show uh, basically that humans have understood the chemistry of making alcohol uh, for a long time. It's sort of one of our earlier sciences in a way. Sure. I mean, fermentation, you know, we have really good evidence, like analyzing the residue on pottery shards, um, really good evidence of people making 
some kind of alcoholic beverage going back at least 10,000 years. And of course, probably much longer than that. You know, these early drinks tended to be very experimental and kind of weird, like um, a mixture of maybe barley and grapes and honey. So it's like, it's not quite beer. It's not quite wine. It's not quite mead, but it's just like everything we have that's possibly fermentable. <laughs> we're going to put it in a clay vessel and see what happens. So yeah, we've been doing that for a very long time. Is there any theory about who first like had the Eureka moment and discovered alcohol and why that would have happened? Not really. It seems like uh, alcohol originated independently across almost all early civilizations. So early, you know, going way back in Latin America, in Asia, in Europe, in Africa. Um, if you think about it, things will naturally ferment, right? Like you leave out some grains or some fruit soaking in water and wild yeast that floats around in the air will find its way there and start eating up that sugar and the waste product that yeast produce after they eat is ethyl alcohol. So that's where it comes from. And it, and it gets made almost spontaneously. You know, interestingly, one of the few civilizations that didn't seem to have a tradition of making alcohol um, are Native Americans. In spite of having abundant fruit and grains available to them, um, when Europeans showed up, they saw no evidence of any kind of tradition of making alcohol. And, you know, Anthropologists have gone back since then and, and sort of looked at what evidence there is and talked to people and looked at traditions. And it looks like it, it kind of never happened. But that's very unusual. Most cultures did. That's surprising. But and this is where botany comes into the picture is I guess you've got cultures around the world all okay, they happen on this and they're different ways. But what what's in common is they're always getting the sugar uh, from plants, although they're getting it from different parts of the plants. And that, and there's a wide, just a wide diversity there, I guess. Exactly right. I mean, that sugar can come from fruit. Um, it can come from the stalk. If you think about sugar cane, it's, you know, the sucrose is in the stalk of this big grassy plant. Um, obviously grains, which are full of starch and starch gets broken down into sugar when it gets wet. And even really weird plants, like if you think about tequila, you know, it's made from the agave plant, which seems like a very unlikely source of sugar. And the plant has to be, uh, well, there's a couple different ways that they made alcohol from agave. One is to harvest the sap, which is sugary, and to make pulque, which is kind of like beer, sort of a sour, almost yogurty kind of beer drink. Um, and, and then later to make tequila, which requires roasting it. I mean, there's all these processing steps you have to take to get at the sugar. But people were highly motivated to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Yes, apparently human yeah. beings always find a way when it comes to making Very alcohol, inventive, so. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so you say something really interesting in the book that I, I wanted to, to ask you to unpack a little bit more. You write that the history of drinking is riddled with legends, distortions, half-truths, and outright lies. I didn't think any field of study could be more prone to myths and misstatements than botany, but that was before I started researching cocktails. So you have to elaborate. What's going on there? <laughs> you know, um, I think it's just a field that has not been subject to a lot of very rigorous fact-checking. So I, I, the, the thing you have to remember is that our history with drinking, particularly kind of more recently, I'm talking in the last few hundred years, um, a lot of the things we drink today got their start as medicine a few hundred years ago. So something like Campari, for instance, um, Benedictine, Chartreuse, all of these European um, aperitifs and bitters, 
those were all medicine originally. You know, before we had medicine in the form of pills, the only thing we had were plants, right? I mean, that's, you got sick and somebody would give you some dried plants in some kind of formula and, and maybe that would make you better and it probably wouldn't. But what they would do is soak those plants in alcohol to extract the active ingredients and have something that was kind of stable on the shelf until someone needed it. So that's what something like chartreuse actually was, was medicine. And just like, uh, you know, the early history of medicine all over the world is that it gets really tied in with mythology and cultural beliefs and was not subject to a lot of rigorous scientific scrutiny until kind of recently, like the last 100, 150 years. And so that kind of bizarre mythology, I think, sort of bled into the world of drinking, just as all of those early medicinal formulas started to become cocktail ingredients. So yeah, I found all kinds of things that have been repeated over and over again in the cocktail literature that are just simply not true. And it was a lot of fun to kind of go through and debunk those things. Is there any one that uh, sticks out for you? Well, yeah, some of them were um, just historical misstatements. Like, for instance, there's um, this common story about uh, Benjamin Franklin having created a recipe for spruce beer. And, 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 and spruce beer is actually sort of an old thing that, um, that early explorers would make to ward off scurvy because it turns out that, that spruce trees are actually pretty high in ascorbic acid. So just like citrus would treat scurvy, so would spruce. So they'd make this beer from it and that would, that would treat the crew. And so, Benjamin Franklin, in fact, never created a recipe for spruce beer. I'm always highly suspicious of any story that involves a founding father. Like, you always yeah. want to look at that stuff with some scrutiny. What he invented everything, Benjamin Franklin. Exactly. What happened is that when he died, he had some handwritten recipes in his papers that were not original recipes. They were just things that he copied out from other cookbooks for his own use, like you would do before you could just snap a picture with your cell phone of a recipe in a cookbook. So... Um, it was never his recipe. It was a woman named Hannah Glass who did this crazy interesting cookbook called The Art of Cookery back in the 1700s. And he never intended to take credit for her recipe. But nonetheless, you will see these microbreweries all over that do founding father beers. And they'll have this Benjamin Franklin spruce beer. Um, and I'm sure that they are never going to go back and put Hannah Glass's face on that bottle. But nonetheless, it wasn't him. It was Hannah Glass. So stuff wow. stuff like that would take me, I mean, I would spend days and days and days on some little fact like that, that I wasn't even sure would ever end up in the book. But I just couldn't resist because it makes me so crazy to have those kind of wrong things repeated over and over. Well, it's great that you are unearthing and clarifying that. Um, and that's, that's actually an amazing little story, um, in itself. I want to ask you some more about some specific drinks and specific plants, but just a, you know, something that struck me reading this that's a little bit more big picture and contextual is about, uh, the relationship between alcohol and globalization a little bit. I mean, you know, reading your book and seeing just how many incredibly different kinds of drinks there are out there and how many incredibly different kinds of plants they're made from made me think that we live in a time where finally, I mean, it used to be every culture had its own alcohol, cultures didn't really talk to each other, but now we can survey them all. <laughs> 
Uh, and you, you, you just have a smorgasbord of different kinds of alcohol. It's kind of overwhelming. Yeah, I really wanted to be very global with this book. You know, I didn't want to just focus on North America and Europe, which is what we tend to do. When you look at what the whole world drinks, you get a very different picture. For instance, um, one of the plants that really I just loved so much is sorghum. Sorghum's this very unglamorous, boring grain. We actually grow a ton of it in the United States. It's like our fourth most fourth largest food crop that we grow in the U.S. So we grow a lot of it, but you don't really think about it. When you think about what plants do we most commonly use to make alcohol, you're going to think about grapes or, you know, barley or something like that. But around the world, sorghum is probably the plant used to make alcohol more than any other. And it's because in in Africa, they make this homemade beer with sorghum. That's this kind of cloudy, (laughs) opaque home brew. And that's uh, that's a longstanding tradition. And then throughout Asia, they make a high-proof spirit out of sorghum called Maotai. So um, it actually ends up in a lot of things. And so, you know, our perspective on what a, what do people really drink on this planet really changes when you start looking at a place like Africa, which is just vast, and people don't really think about their drinking tradition so much. It also makes you feel that, you know, when you're watching the World Cup game and you're drinking a beer, it makes you feel incredibly unimaginative. <laughs> Like, oh, drinking a beer, like, can you do better? I mean, look right. at all the things that this world has produced, and you're drinking a beer. Right. Well, you know, that is kind of one of the nice things, actually. I mean, you, you go to a bar, just any sort of decent bar, and you look behind the bar, and you really will see not just ingredients from all over the world, but drinking traditions expressed in the bottle. And those are really cultural traditions, you know, whether it's like ouzo and, and the Greeks or... um you know, all of these European liqueurs or um, Chinese herbs that are ending up in bitters. I mean, it really is this very kind of level of global sharing that I think you, you know, you don't see in many other places besides a bar. It's kind of a cool thing. Mm -hmm. So let's let's go on. You started to get into all the different kinds of um, plants and we won't be able to talk about them all. But um, tell us a little bit about tree barks. (laughs) And how those are used to make alcohol. That was one that's sort of striking. Right, yeah. I'm really interested in um, in all the different ways that trees get used to make alcohol besides the fruit. I mean, the fruit is the thing that is obvious. But um, tree barks, interestingly enough, turn out to be often very aromatic and very medicinal. So cinnamon, for example. Cinnamon is tree bark. Um, and that's something that everyone knows and is really familiar with. Um, the quinine that we use to treat malaria is from the bark of the chinchona tree. And so that was highly sought after by Europeans who were desperate for treatments for all the illnesses that they were um, getting exposed to. And um, and there was really a race to get hold of this tree in South America and to get viable seedlings going and to start growing it for medicine. But it also ends up in tonic water. So, you know, your gin and tonic, if you put your if you put your G&T under an ultraviolet light, like a like a black light, like I'm sure you have in your in your basement, um, it will glow. Your tonic water will actually glow bright blue. And that's the quinine, these little unstable quinine uh, molecules. And so, yeah, there's all kinds of um, of really trees all over the world whose bark has been used. Also, their sap. So uh, myrrh, for instance, and frankincense are both that's tree sap. Um, and it just bleeds out of the tree and forms these little kind of hardened crystallized balls that have been used as spices and perfumes for a long time, but also even today end up in spirits. So like, um, 
I think uh, Royal Combier, which is a very sort of fancy orange liqueur, has a little bit of myrrh in it. And so that's mm. that tree. <laughs> it's weird, uh, huh? Yeah, no, it is. It, it, it is weird. You, you know, another thing I read in the book is that when it comes to gin, they often have like a lot of different kinds of plants in them. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, so gin, by law, if you're going to call it gin, it has to have some juniper in it. So that's the one thing that everybody knows about. But most gins have five to ten other plants in them. And some of them are really um, interesting to think about it if you think about what people are trying to achieve when they make gin. So, for instance, gin will always have juniper. It'll almost always have some citrus, a little bit of uh, citrus, usually orange peel. And um, and usually something that gives it some kind of a floral note, and it might be um, it could be something like lavender, it might be cardamom, you know, all of these spices that have floral flavors in them. Well, one of the things that you always, almost always, find in gin is coriander, which is the seed of the cilantro plant. And coriander has all these little flavor molecules packed inside that little tiny seed, including citral, which is a citrus molecule, and um, pinene, which is a woodsy, very much like the juniper, and also linalool, which is a floral molecule found in uh, lavender and roses. So the sort of three flavor components of gin, the woodsiness, the citrus, and the floral notes are all found inside the seed of this one plant. And that is why it turns up so often uh, in gin. Right, and then if you go make a gin drink, then you end up adding plants at additional stages. Because I take it we're just talking about what's in the bottle now, not what's what happens once you uh, mix it in some way or someone sticks a, I don't know, you know, some kind of celery in it or whatever. They might well, stick exactly. In it. Yeah. Or you make yeah. a martini and you put a little vermouth in there, and vermouth is just wine with herbs and fruit soaked in it. So you know, you could easily be adding five to ten more plants just by a little splash of vermouth, and maybe a. a twist of citrus is bringing up the citrus flavor. So it is interesting how they all work together. And if you think about it from the perspective of these molecules that the plants are making for their own reasons, of course, <laughs> not, not not for us, not for our gin, but for defense or for pollination or reproduction or why, it, for whatever reason they make these molecules, um, they combine in really interesting ways in a drink. Well, and that's why we go around the world also looking at plants to try to, to try to find medicinal substances because we think that nature might have already created all kinds of interesting chemicals that and done it better than we can create them in the laboratory. So in a sense, the finding all the different alcoholic uses is, is sort of parallel to that. It, yeah, it is parallel to that. And, you know, there's all sorts of interesting um, pharmaceutical work that really closely overlaps what happens in the cocktail world. Like I interviewed this woman at Rutgers, who's a um, one of the world's leading specialists in gentian. And gentian is this um, flower grows in the Swiss Alps. I mean, there's a lot of species, but the one I'm thinking of grows in the Swiss Alps. And uh, the roots are very bitter and very medicinal. So gentian ends up in Campari, and it ends up in a lot of other bitter Italian um, amaros, but uh, also very useful for medicine. And she is doing cutting-edge pharmaceutical research on the uses of gentian while also sort of studying our history with it. And the history is very closely tied to cocktails and what we drink. I mean, the those early medicinal formulas are in the bar right now. So it's a really interesting continuum, I think, of how we study plants. Is there any truth to the idea that certain kinds of alcohol might be actually 
curative. I mean, I'm just thinking, I, I don't know where I heard it, the idea that drinking whiskey might, you know, kill off the germs when a cold is starting or something like that. I mean, is there any anything to that? You know, very little. I'm highly, highly skeptical of any, you know, anybody who wants to claim that alcohol can be used as a medicine. For one thing, you often don't get enough of the active ingredient to do you any good. Um, actually, gentian's a really interesting example of that because uh, it, it is one of the few plants that I talk about in the book where I actually explain how you can feel its medicinal effects while you're sitting at the bar. And so Campari is a, is a good example because it's got gentian in it and everyone can get it. Um, Angostura bitters also has gentian. So you drink a little bit of some solution that has gentian in it. And there are, um, compounds in the, in the plant that talk to the nerve endings in your mouth, which then talk to your brain and your brain tells your body what to do. And, uh, and, and it causes you to produce more saliva and more gastric um, fluids throughout your digestive system. And this is something that's being studied for medicinal reasons, but you will experience it. If you take a sip of a Camparian soda, you'll notice that you're drooling a little bit more than usual. And that is that very medicinal effect that you can actually experience just with a little swallow of it. But in such small quantities that it's, it's never going to make good medicine. Got it. Well, so here's another sort of medical thing, and I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, but I mean, given that you've talked to many readers who are who are making drinks, I mean, you know, you are certainly proximate to people um, imbibing alcohol all the time. So, right. I mean, at least in, in the sense of <laughs> what you write about. So, you know, there's this idea that, you know, you drink, obviously everybody knows you drink a lot of alcohol, incredibly bad for you, um, and it's associated with all kinds of long-term health problems. Um you know, you would think that drinking no alcohol would be completely healthy. Um, but actually, there's, there's this body of research that suggests moderate alcohol intake, which would be, I don't know what it is per person per day, but it's like one drink or, or maybe one to two drinks for someone who's like heavier um, is actually good for you. I mean, what do you, is that, is there anything to that? You know, well, I'm fascinated by that research. And I, you know, it, it could be that what's going on physically are things like, lowers your heart rate, might lower your blood pressure, might decompress you a little bit so that all the stress hormones in your body get a little break for a while. But then there's all these other interesting social questions like, is it true that people who maybe have one drink a night or so tend to be more social? So because maybe drinking is associated with being social and we know that long-term relationships and long-term friendships keep you alive longer. So what about that? What about, um, what about income? You know, the kind of person that has one nice little glass of wine at dinner every night is, could be someone who's more likely to be sort of stable and employed and living a pretty kind of safe and secure life. So I think, you know, there's a lot of questions about that. Like how, where does the cause and effect fall there? But I'm encouraged. Like I'm glad to know that <laughs> a drink a night or so is, is, uh, is not going to do you any harm. So in the course of doing this research, what was the strangest or craziest drink that you ever came across? Well, there are so many crazy ones around the world. Um, the, the monkey puzzle tree is one that's fascinating to me. It's this ancient, ancient conifer, um, probably the oldest, one of the oldest plants that one of the oldest trees that we still see on the planet today, you know, around in the age of dinosaurs. And it produces these cones and inside the cones are little nuts, kind of like pine nuts. 
And, uh, and that's actually used to make an alcoholic beverage called chicha. So in certain tribes in South America, we'll sit around and chew these uh, monkey puzzle nuts and spit them into a communal little vat. And the saliva starts the germination and the conversion of starches to sugars and all the things needed to make it alcohol. So you get this sh- <laughs> shared wow. tub, saliva and half-chewed nuts, uh, and that turns into alcohol and that's what people drink, mostly ceremonially huh. these days. But, you know, again, I just have to think like, man, how bad must they have needed a drink? <laughs> that that right like that wow. that became the thing they were going to do well yeah you think about you know you're worried in the bar because if you're you know too unfriendly to the bartender they're going to spit in your drink but i guess that in this culture that's <laughs> right, right that's the foundation of the drink that's where it all begins i also noticed that you are very against the worm or the scorpion or whatever in the tequila bottle um tell us about that yes well so um under mexican law you can't put anything in a bottle of tequila but what you can do is in a bottle of mezcal you can put um, a worm or a creature of some kind and there are there are people in mexico making really fantastic unbelievable mezcals that rival any good scotch you know i mean just fantastic spirits that are delightful to drink who very much wish that this gimmick with the worm would just be outlawed. But so far that hasn't happened. So um, usually the worm is the agave snout weevil. It's the larva of a little critter that preys on agave plants. And it's really is just a gimmick. Um, usually it's the mark of a not very good mezcal. So generally that would be one indicator that maybe this isn't the one to try. <laughs> And uh, if you've ever taken a sip out of one of those and thought, well, I'll I'll drink some, but I'm not going to swallow the worm. The bad news is that alcohol is a solvent. And so it extracts things from whatever is in it. And so lab analysis has shown that there is a little bit of worm DNA in every sip. So if you've had some, you have swallowed a little worm along with it. (laughs) Okay. Well, so, uh, you know, to, to, to wrap, I mean, this is fascinating and, um, sort of take a turn at the end here. Um, this show is airing on the 4th of July. Mm. Uh, and we encourage our listeners to be careful if they drink in all cases, but, um, on this three day weekend, we are sure some of them will. So, um, what are some good appropriate things to drink on a hot 4th of July weekend? What can you tell us about their origins or how they're made. Well, so here's a drink that really dates back to the founding fathers and the kind of alcohol that we were making when we first settled this country. Two of the things that we drank a lot of in our early days were um, hard cider, apple cider, and um, corn whiskey, right? Like bourbon. Those are very American drinks and um, very much part of what the founding fathers were drinking. So the two of them together actually make a drink called a stone fence. And all you do is take hard cider, which is the lightly alcoholic, fizzy kind of cider, and pour it in a glass with some ice and add a little splash of bourbon, like um, an ounce, ounce and a half at the most, and give it a good stir. And that's the drink. Now, people really experiment with this drink. Sometimes they'll do something a little bit like a uh, mint julep where they'll add some mint and some simple syrup and maybe a little squeeze of uh, lime juice to it. Sometimes people will add a little bit of fruit syrup like cassis or, I don't know, blackberry liqueur, something like that to make it more of a fruitier kind of red drink. 
So it's a nice template to explore. You've basically got something kind of fizzy and dry, and you've got the bourbon as a base alcohol, and then you can sort of add to that. But the nice thing is it's reasonably light. I mean, you can really dial back the bourbon and have something that you can drink during the day when it's hot. Hard cider is fantastic for that. It's one of my favorite things to drink in the summer or really all the time, actually. Great. That Thank you for a very appropriately patriotic choice yeah. and people can, you know, drink uh, for their country. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and it doesn't have any so, blue food coloring in it either, which is also yeah. important for, for the July yeah. drink. Stay away from totally. food coloring. Well, um, on that note, Amy Stewart, this has been uh, really fascinating and fun. And I want to thank you for being with us on Inquiring Minds. All right. Well, thank you. What amazes me is how many different ways you can actually generate alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and not only that, but how motivated human beings seem to be to get it, right? The lengths they go to. Um, you don't hear quite the same, shall we say, drive when we talk about other toxic or, uh, you know, drugs that make us feel yeah. good. Uh, substances. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think you can make an argument for the existence of God here that the that our planet is fine tuned for us to have alcohol, um, and you know yeah, that seems suggests inevitable. the ex- existence of a creator who loves us. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> or hates us right. if you see all the damage that alcohol can do to a society. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly is easy, and the fact that it has uh, popped up in almost every human culture, as she explains, and popped up long before. Um, almost every other aspect of modernity <laughs> suggests that, <laughs> suggests that there's something about it. It's like the you know domesticate the dog and have a drink. Yeah. So hopefully on this Fourth of July that has wet our listeners' whistles and you can go and have a drink uh, after you listen to this episode, of course. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, silly stories, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration including The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.